So we find ourselves back in 1 Samuel after about a six-year break. So it's been a while since we've been here. Uh, and, and yet we, we come back because even in this long story that was uh, cut down from the whole of verse 25, I think there's a, a lot to learn about our Lord and his care for us. Uh, I might refer to uh, the Lord multiple times as Yahweh. When you see in uh, this translation, Lord, in all caps, that is Yahweh. That's the personal name for God. I will be your God and you will be my people. And, uh, and, and we find that that language is used throughout the Old Testament. And it's a, a reminder for us of who he is as a, a God who wants to be in relationship with his people. And what we find throughout First and Second Samuel, throughout all of Scripture, is that Yahweh is working his providence in this world to care for his people. And here we find this restraining providence, restraining David. We, we may have experienced uh, restraining in all kinds of, of different ways, and, uh, and we can look back and we can say that when we've been restrained, it's within the Lord's providence, and there are times when our Sin and foolishness is not restrained, and, and still the Lord is in control. But what we find is he's working in all of these people, or through at least all of these people, Nabal and Abigail, this servant, and, and David. And I, I hope that we find encouragement here. I, I think there might be times where we've seen the Lord restraining. My, my example is not so much a spiritual one, but uh, it's illustrative of restraining forces outside of ourselves that uh, can be helpful a number of years ago, we were in Colorado and we were driving from the place that we were staying about 45 minutes to, to the ski slopes. And because it's through the mountains, it's two lane roads, they often have these places where it splits into more lanes so that, uh, that you drivers can pass slower drivers. And, um, and we were coming toward the end of one of those sections and I knew that I wanted to go faster than the car in front of me. And so I, I didn't have much time before I needed to get past him. And so I began to speed up and right at the end, he pulls right in front of me. Uh, and I have to brake hard. And uh, in my mind, I'm thinking that it was dangerous and how dare he, and I, I was angry, right? Because, you know, how dare somebody uh, impede me in my driving? Because I'm always doing it perfectly. Uh, and nobody should get in my way, right? Uh, that, was my, that was my reaction. Until not much farther down the road, right over the hill, was a police officer. And I was probably, I'm not going to say for sure, wanting to drive faster than I should, but I, I certainly would have been doing that to pass this guy, right? So it, it was a guaranteed ticket almost. Uh, and this guy saved me from that by pulling in front of me. And he, he, he was doing it on purpose. It was very clear at that point that he did that on purpose. He restrained me from my foolishness and the consequences of that. Uh, we ended up together parking next to one another 30 minutes down the road at the, uh, at the ski area. And I was able to thank him. Um, but I, I think it, it speaks to our things that happen and, and, and we begin to, to rail against uh, what's going on, thinking that uh, something, some injustice has happened to us. And, and often it's for uh, our good. We find that happening here with David. We're going to learn a little bit uh, in this passage about God's restraining providence 
uh, in the life of, of David particularly. This is a story, First and Second Samuel, David is a very central character. If we remember, uh, the, the people of God were ruled by judges. This is just really big picture of where we are in this, this context. It was ruled by judges, and they wanted a king like the other nations. That's a whole story. But God gives them a king and King Saul, and then Saul is terrible. And he disobeys God, and God says, okay, you're no longer going to be king. And he anoints David as king. And David is incredibly successful uh, as the, the leader of the military. He's not yet king. Saul still is. But Saul is incredibly jealous of all the attention that David is getting, and he's been trying to kill David. And in the previous chapter, David actually restrained his men from killing Saul when he was right there for the killing. And because he was still God's anointed. But here we find David in this position of control, and he comes across Nabal. And we're going to look just really briefly at Nabal, Abigail, the servant, and David. And we're going to see the hope that I think we find in the providence of Yahweh, uh, caring, restraining his people. Let Let me pray, and we'll look at each of these characters. Lord, we pray that you would meet us here through the power of your word. Change us. Through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nabal is clearly a fool. The the readers uh, and the the folks involved in this story would have known that Nabal actually means fool. Uh, Abigail refers to that in verse 25. Um, He probably wasn't named fool, but uh, it probably became a a nickname. He, He just clearly, this is the way that he lives, right? And, uh, and, and we see it. Uh, he rails against David foolishly. He, 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 his first response is not just to say no to this very reasonable request from one that had been anointed and promised to be the king, right? Everybody knows the story. So when he says, who is David? He's speaking foolishness because everybody knew who David was. This is why Saul, the king, wants to kill David because he's getting too much attention. And Nabal then makes it clear that he knows who he is. He says, who is this son of Jesse? He knows exactly who David is. But then he, um, he begins to uh, speak ill of him and, and, and basically say he's just a, a runaway slave. And I'm not going to give him, not only am I not going to give him anything, I'm going to insult him in the process. And he's very clearly also focused on himself. So not only is he not going to serve the Lord's anointed, as Abigail refers to David, my Lord, lowercase, not Yahweh, uh, it can be confusing reading, right? My Lord, my Lord, and right one after the other as Abigail is speaking to David. Uh, again, it's the Lord, my Lord, David, and Yahweh, the Lord. But um, we have her recognizing David as my Lord, as the anointed of God. But Nabal says in verse 11, after he's asked this question, who is David? He knows exactly who he is. He says, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? He's focused on what he's earned, what he deserves. This is just one of the ways in which he is foolish, focused on himself. This is all of our tendencies, right? That we become focused on ourselves. There are all kinds of ways that we do this. And we do it with our possessions as well. How are our possessions ours? How are they mine? Something that I've earned and something that I deserve. And, that, and that's what our culture tells us, right? That it's, it's ours. We earned it. We, we deserve it. And, and so there becomes a question of uh, how we treat others. Do we do so graciously or selfishly? What's our, our first uh, posture toward our, our money? 
the money that's mine, right? One question, one specific application that we might think about is uh, you've received a stimulus check. How do you think about that? What are you going to do with that? Now, for many, uh, it's meeting needs that you have, and that's completely appropriate. But there are are many I know in in our congregation that uh, have steady income. It hasn't changed through the pandemic and still get a stimulus. What are we doing with that money? Are we thinking how it's for me, how it's mine, something I earned or deserved? Or are we thinking about how to care for others? Just a question to ask ourselves as we think, are we focused on mine as Nabal was? So we move past Nabal. He's the one who's created this conflict in the story. And then we find this character, Abigail, his, his wife. There's a servant in between. We'll get to him. But here is, is Abigail. And if there's any human hero in the story, it's absolutely Abigail. Um, I, I think it's as we continue to go through 1 Samuel, as we look at Scripture, we need to remind ourselves again and again that the providence of Yahweh, that Yahweh is the main character, that he is the hero, that uh, the human characters throughout uh, the Old Testament, uh, even David here, the man after God's own heart, they're often making mistakes. And he's going to make bigger mistakes than this one uh, in 2 Samuel and and further down his life. That's actually instructive for us that we don't come to the Old Testament looking for some easy moral story. Be like David as he was courageous when he, when he killed Goliath. That's not the point. The point is that Yahweh is to be trusted and he is the one that's in control. So that doesn't mean we can't learn from the good examples that are set. That We can't learn here from Abigail and the example that she sets. She's not the central character Yahweh is, but he uses her. And here she is, decisive, resourceful, perceptive, courageous, humble, theological, rational, convincing, shrewd. I mean, she, she is nailing it at every point. She's, she's getting it right. And, uh, and there's, there is absolutely something to be learned here. So we've got a couple of things that she does that uh, are powerful. Verse 24, the first posture that she takes before David as she comes to avert his wrath, she says in verse 24, as she falls at his feet, she says, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. On me alone, be the guilt. I mean, she is humbling herself and essentially willing to sacrifice herself for the benefit of of others. She she should bear no guilt. It was Nabal, it was her husband who, uh, who... was so foolish in his reaction to David's men. And yet, she is willing to take that upon herself. This is a pattern that we see in Scripture. Uh, It's a pointing to one who is willing to do that in the future, who ultimately does that, person of Jesus Christ who lays down his life for us. But here is Abigail willing to humble herself, willing to sacrifice herself for others, willing to take on guilt that, that she hasn't earned, doesn't deserve. The second thing that we see is that her loyalty is ultimately with the Lord, with Yahweh, and with my Lord, with David, with the Lord's anointed. So that as she speaks, she recognizes that this is where her priority is. Verse 26, now then, my Lord, David, as the Lord, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, because Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, then she begins to ask her question. But she's recognizing that Yahweh is in control, 
uh, and that that takes priority actually over her connections, over her family, over her evil husband. She's willing to disassociate with the evil in her own family. This is incredibly difficult. This is the connection she had. This is where her, her life is, and she's willing to remove herself from that, to disassociate with that evil. There's a challenge for us to think about if there are times that we're unwilling to call sin, sin, and evil, evil, because it's connected to somebody we know and, and love, maybe. That could be a family member. We, we see this uh, as a pattern uh, in, in our country as we talk about issues of race, that we're unwilling to call certain things uh, racism because of the patterns that we've seen in people that we love who have gone before us. And sometimes that's family members, and sometimes that's heroes in the faith or, or pastors. There, there are all kinds of ways that uh, we are tempted to not call sin, sin. We, we see it in other ways, too. We see it uh, when there are issues of uh, abuse. And sometimes this happens in the church so that we're affected by church leaders in really positive ways. And then we think, no, I, I've learned so much. Or I've, also, we, we need to be able to disassociate with people who do evil, and at least with the evil that they do, as difficult as that may be at times, that there are there's a call to stand for what is true and right and good. And we see Abigail doing that in a really difficult way. Now, my prayer certainly is that that's not the experience that any of us have, but it, it certainly might be at some point. And so the call is to stand for truth as Abigail does here. I think there's a, a lot to learn. We could spend a lot of time. There's an encouragement here. One, one encouragement is as we're going through 1 Samuel, go back and read First uh, Samuel. Now, it's a long passage already. It's even longer and asking you to read the context beforehand. And we also have the, the liturgical reading and prayer guides. Those are the, the Easter uh, season, the liturgical season, right? Those are in the back if you want to grab those on the way out. And so this is even more to read, but it will help understand where we are as, as we come to 1 Samuel each week to understand the context. But spend some more time with Abigail and, and learn from her. These are just a couple of ways in which she stands out as, uh, as someone that it would be positive to imitate. Then we get to another wise person, and that is, after we've seen the fool Nabal and the wisdom of Abigail, we see the wisdom of this servant depicted in verses 14 and 17, 14 through 17. Uh, only 14 is printed, but it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty short little section where the servant, we don't even know his name, hears what the servants of David say to his uh, Lord, his master, Nabal, and he realizes that this is foolishness. And so he's willing to be courageous and bold and go tell Abigail what has happened. He's central to this story. If it's not for him and the role that he plays, then, then David continues to go in uh, and to commit this horrendous act, to seek vengeance on his own for his own personal gain. But here we find the Lord working through this person whose name we don't even know. This is the way God often works. Another example would be in Acts chapter 23 when there's this plot against Paul's life and his nephew just happens to hear it and is able to go and report and save his life. This is the way that the Lord works. And this should be encouraging for us. The reality is uh, there are only so many people whose names you're going to remember throughout history. God works through us, ordinary People living our ordinary lives, doing the mundane things, Yahweh is working. He's, he's doing that sometimes 
in ways that we would restrain one another from evil. But it's clearly him at work. Abigail's the first to note this. Verse 26, when she says, and she's assuming what David's reaction is going to be, and uh, thankfully, rightfully so, she's, she's a little bit presuming for him. Fortunately, he responds well. She says in verse 26, Now then, my Lord, as the Lord, Yahweh, lives, and as your soul lives, because Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, from accomplishing, trying to accomplish salvation on your own, from uh, bringing blood guilt upon you, Yahweh has saved you. He's used Abigail. He's used the servant, this person whose name we don't even know. And then David affirms it in verses 32, 34, and 39, that Yahweh is the one doing this. God uses the ordinary. Now, think about if you're a follower of Jesus and have been for any time, think about those people in your life that have influenced you to follow Jesus maybe initially or to grow in your relationship with him. The reality is, hopefully some of the leaders in in this church might be a part of that story, but think about your time before that. The reality is, if you think about those folks, the other people in here don't know who they are. And, And that's right and normal. You, you have the privilege today, you can meet my parents after, they're part of my story, but you wouldn't know if they weren't visiting here. But we have other folks uh, that, I have other folks who have influenced my life spiritually that you'll probably never meet. And that's the way it is, and that's the opportunity we have in the lives of one another. God using us as uh, just regular people living ordinary lives, seeing God's providence work. And then we come to David. Known as a man after God's own heart. You know, be like David in all his courage and all the ways. And No, there's so many places where we should not be like David, and here's one of them. He's so angry, he's so offended by the person that pulled out in front of him, by the slight that he received from Nabal, that he wants to go and he wants to kill every male among them. Strap on your sword, he's ready to go. It's, it's foolishness. And it's God who restrains him from this blood guilt from this deep sin. And fortunately, when that restraining comes through Abigail, he responds with wisdom. But we learn from this that we need to be humble ourselves to respond to those that might call us on our sin. They might say, wait, I think you might have an issue here. That we would be willing to hear and humbly say, thank you. It's, it's difficult to be those people that would speak that into one another's lives, but that we would find truth and, and hope in that. That's what we find here in chapter 25 of Samuel. We find God at work, Yahweh's providence in such a way that lives are saved. I, I, I recognize and have thought all week knowing that I would be preaching a sermon on the providence of God and its goodness in our life, knowing that this same week I would be preaching the funeral of one of my closest friend's one-year-old son. It's been in my mind the whole time. Providence of God and this funeral that I'll also be preaching. And I believe every word of the goodness of the providence that I proclaimed. And Jeff and Autumn believe every word of the goodness of the providence of God, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's messy. And it's messy here, but realize that lives were at stake here. Lives were saved in this providential action. 
That Yahweh is working in such a way to care for his people in every event that happens. Jeff and Autumn have talked about trusting God in his no, in his providential no of answer to prayers. Trusting him in everything that happens, knowing that he is good, knowing that his bigger story is working providence in a way that is beautiful for his people. And so we know more of the story, more of God's plan. As Acts chapter 2 verse 23 tells us that it was that Jesus himself was delivered up. The son of God was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was always a part of his plan that Jesus would enter into the death himself, that he would, just like Abigail here, that he would be willing to take upon the guilt of his people. And that's exactly what he does when he goes to death on the cross. Stepping into a place that he didn't deserve, that he didn't earn, willing to take our sin upon himself. And we also know that on the other end of death, on the other side of Holy Saturday, and sometimes we feel like we're sitting in Holy Saturday more than we're sitting in Resurrection Sunday, but we do know that it is there, it is real and it's true. We're one week out from celebrating Easter, and it is just as real and just as powerful today as it was on that that day where there's there's something special about the way that we experience Easter and that's appropriate but it is true every day and it is true every Sunday and we proclaim that hope and that truth now even with everything that we experience even with the loss and the death we know that the resurrection is real and true and it brings us hope It is real and it is true and we proclaim it as that. It's not just this story. This is what we talked about last week. It's not just a story that we tell ourselves, some spiritual parable. The resurrection is real. And it's part of God's providential story working for you and for me.